Welcome to the Cross Lane Podcast, a community committed to bringing people to Jesus. We're in this series called Selfless, and we've been talking about trying to move from self-centered living to selfless living. And what strikes you right away as you begin to think about this and talk about it is that it's an incredibly difficult task. It's, it's easy to spot selfishness in somebody else, right? It's not too hard to see someone else and go, well, that's a selfish move. That's a selfish act right there. But when it's us, it's different. Because when we demonstrate selfishness or when we are being selfish to us personally, it doesn't feel selfish. It feels normal. You know, we, we think to ourselves, well, anybody would react the way I reacted under the same circumstances. So as we move forward here, let's just agree that it's not an easy thing that we're talking about this morning and throughout this series. Identifying selfishness and asking God to do something in our hearts fundamentally that would change us where we move to be more humble, more selfless, to, to sacrifice more and to be servants. This is massive growth. This is not easy growth. And uh, it's going to take some time and it's going to really take some dedication on our part. The, the, the sermon, the, uh, the, the, the verses that we're looking at for this series, uh, the, really the anchor verse is Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. It says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. It's the first two words in that that really get you. Do nothing. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. This is written to a Jewish uh, Jesus community about 30 years after the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, they are in the northern Greek uh, town or province of Philippi, and it's believed that this was written about 60 AD. We are about three decades into the birth of the Jesus movement, and already a church in that movement needs to be encouraged in this way, needs to have someone write to them and kind of set them straight on some things. He says, each of you look out for the interests of others, not just your own interests. We believe that the writer of these words was the Apostle Paul. We believe that he was their spiritual father. He's been there about 10 years earlier. He has founded this church. He's kind of come in and done, not really a revival service, that doesn't really do it justice, but he's come in and he's made converts and he's established a church and now he's moved on to go someplace else to start another church and he has left behind these believers in Jesus. And now he's writing a letter to them, and it includes a, a significant section of not just looking out for themselves, but he calls them to look out for other people as well. There are a lot of things that you will probably attempt in your lifetime. Uh, attempting a selfless life will be at the top of the list of the most difficult things you ever try to do in your life. It's just we're, we're selfish by nature. It's, it's where our sinful nature comes from, just us looking out for us instead of other people. And so it's really hard to retool, and it's really hard to change the way we think about that. I want to take your mind uh, right now to an aquatic center, okay? We're in an aquatic center. Maybe our kids are swimming in the pool, and uh, we're kind of wandering around just waiting for swimming lessons to be over or whatever, and you, you're, you're walking along, and you look on the wall. There's a poster on the wall, and on this poster, you see three things. You see a, a, a broom, a picture like a drawing of a broom, you see a picture of a beach ball, and then you see the, the, the emblem for no, right? The circle with the slash mark through it. And, and then below that, you see these words, reach 
throw, don't go. Reach, throw, don't go. Now, what are they trying to say? What they're trying to say is if someone were to be in peril in the pool, if someone's drowning in the pool, reach something to them, throw something to them, be careful if you're not trained about swimming out and trying to help somebody who is drowning. We've talked about this about three or four months ago in an illustration where I said, if you ever encounter someone, if, if you ever go through uh, like life rescue classes, uh, lifeguarding classes, one of the things they tell you up front is, the most dangerous thing you can do is to swim out to somebody who's drowning and just swim right up to them. Because if they're desperate enough, if they are really thinking that, that they're going under for the last time, if you get too close, they will try to climb you in an effort to get out of the water. And not only will they hurt themselves, they'll hurt you and both of you could be in peril. So um, it's a dangerous thing to approach somebody who is sinking. So we, we come to this idea of the beach ball. If I were drowning in a pool and someone threw me a beach ball, I would hang on to it for dear life because it would provide the buoyancy I needed to keep my head above the water. So the question this morning is really pretty simple. What is your beach ball? Now I have to tell you, don't make fun of my little beach ball. I can palm it. That's one thing I like about it. I, I, I went, I got found one of these and it was really small and I went to Ryan and I'm like, really, this is the best you got is this little beach ball? He said, no, he said, I got a real big one. So he took me and showed me the real big beach ball. It's like this big. I spent 45 minutes on Thursday blowing that thing up. You know, at the end of it, I'm just, you know, I'm, the room is spinning and I needed oxygen. And then I left it in my office. I come back on Friday and it's all deflated and I'm like, homie ain't doing that again. So, so you get the little beach ball, okay? But, but the question is, what is your beach ball? What is it that provides security in your life? What is it that gives your life buoyancy? What makes you feel affirmed? What do you cling to that, that gives you security and, and affirmation and recognition? And, and, and what happens in life is that we grab for these so hard. We, we long for and reach for and, and crave attention and recognition. I, I think that's one of the reasons social media has exploded onto the scene is because it affords us a certain level of affirmation and recognition. But we can, we can cling to the desire to be respected. We can cling to the desire to be recognized and to be affirmed. And if we ever feel like someone has disrespected us or not affirmed us or put us down, it's the equivalent of somebody poking a hole in our beach ball and we're running out of air, and we're going under. And we don't know what to do oftentimes. So here's the question for today. If in our fallen state we cling to affirmation and recognition and respect and security, like drowning people to a beach ball, how in the world can we be expected to live a selfless life? How do you live a life that says, it's not about me, it's about you, how do you live a life that says, I'm not going to love me, I'm going to love you more than I love me? How do we get to that place if I'm always thinking about me and I'm not thinking about somebody else? And, and I think you would agree with me, this is one of the hardest things to overcome as we try to follow Jesus. So last week I gave you three phases. I want to do that again this week. There, there are three phases that we see uh, Paul kind of take these people through as he writes to them. The, the first one is a new challenge. Phase one is a new challenge. Phase two is a new identity. Phase three is a new mind. A new challenge, a new identity, and a new mind. Let's talk about the new challenge. 
60 years or so after the resurrection of Jesus, Paul writes to a group of Jesus followers and he has to remind them, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And the question comes, why did they need to hear that again if they'd already been told that? What was going on? One of the phrases we've learned is vision leaks. I want to show you, uh, uh, I showed you this last week. I want you to see it again, this, this harbor town of Philippi. It's about 10 miles inland. You would, to get to Philippi, you would have arrived in that time, you would have arrived at a place called Neapolis. You're seeing the, the outer marketplace. Um, this is where you know, money changes hands for fruit and vegetables and, and the things that they need for their daily life. And um, as this is the Via Ignatia. This road is 2,000 years old. It's, it's about 4,500. What you're seeing is a part of a 4,500 mile uh, deal. It's known as the Via Ignatia. And it went all the way across. And, and, and so if you went up into that, that bay, you would arrive at Neapolis and you would come to Philippi. What you see here is what was known as the Agora. The Agora was the marketplace. It was the place where uh, judicial things happened. It was kind of like City Hall and the police station and the marketplace. And there was probably some religious stuff that happened there as well. And then you see the theater. Um, I'm going to talk, I talked about this last week. This is where they would show they would, you, you know, you would go watch a, a Greek tragedy and, or a Greek play. And the Romans came in after the Philippians had built this structure. The Romans came in and they altered that. They built a wall. They took the first three rows out, built a wall about three or four feet high for the purpose of keeping animals inside the floor area. Because what they did is they turned that theater into a, a place where gladiatorial games took place. Um, you know, there were a lot of ex-military in Philippi, and so their attitude was, why would I want to go watch a Greek tragedy where someone pretends to kill somebody else when I can go to that place and see the real thing? And so that's what happened. And so nice of the Romans to put up a wall to keep the animals that were killing people on the floor out of the crowd. That was a really nice touch for them. But, but that's what was going on, and that's what you, you saw there. And so the, there's a reason that I show you that video footage. Um, there's a tendency on our part when we're thinking about uh, things that happened, you know, 2,000 years ago to just open our Bible and say, we know Philippians 2 says, it's real easy for me as a preacher to get up here and say, well, Philippians 2 says, and to just kind of mow right through it. And we forget that Paul is writing to real people in a real place with real problems, and it all took place in real time. So he's writing to these people and they've had this Jesus message now for about 10 years. And, and I showed you in that video this place called the Agora. That's one of the things I want to stick out in your mind. When Paul went to Philippi, Silas and Timothy and Luke went with him. Now, one of the places you can read about what we're looking at today, in Acts chapter 16, you can read all about this story that I'm going to tell you. But Paul and his buddy Silas, they get beaten up in Philippi. They're there in the Agora, in the marketplace, this judicial center, and Paul and Silas are brought to trial, and they are going to be whipped in that space. They're going to be chained to a post, a flesh exposed, you know, whip brought out, and they're going to be beaten. The reason they, they were put on trial and beaten is that they were walking through Philippi one day, and it actually did that day after day. Well, there was this little girl, and she had some sort of occultic 
presence in her life, something dark, something um, that really took over her life. And because of this presence, she could kind of foretell people's fortunes. Um, she was a slave girl. She was owned by someone. So that what would happen is that people would come to her owners and they would want to have their fortunes read. They would bring in the girl. She would listen to the, their story and then you know, tell a story about what was going to happen in their future. And they had quite a business going with this little demon-possessed girl. They, would, you know, they made a lot of money on her. Well, one day, um, she was following Paul and, and Silas around, and for some time she had been following them and screaming after them the same thing. She kept saying, these men are messengers of the Most High God. These men are messengers of the Most High God. Now, I don't know about you, but, it, but when your kids were little and you were going on a trip, did, did your kids ever like sing the same song over and over again and it just got in your head and drove you nuts? Or they had the same phrase that they kept saying all the time and, and you heard it so much that you just wanted to turn around and scream at them, would you stop doing that, you know? Or, or was, it, was that just me that had that problem? I, this went on for several days. This girl's following Paul and Silas around. These men are, are messengers of the Most High God. Well, she did it so much and so loudly that Paul got kind of ticked off about it. And so he spins around and he commands this demon to come out of this poor girl and instantly her eyes clear up and things go back to normal for her but her owners are furious because with one command Paul has just ruined their business they had quite a good gig going for, with, with this girl at the center of it and so they drag Paul and Silas into the magistrate at the agora and they say these guys have come to our city and they're teaching practices that are unlawful for us Romans to obey and Paul and Silas are stripped down they are whipped in Philippi, and they are uh, ushered out of town the very next day. And again, you can read all about that in Acts 16. I would en encourage you to do that. So that's what happened with Paul when he was in Philippi. But once he left, you would expect that things in Philippi would kind of calm down, right? No, that's not what happened. They didn't calm down. This is why the Philippians are facing a new challenge. Let's look at something. I, I want our focus to be on Philippians 2, but, but I want us to go a couple of verses before that and look at Philippians chapter 1, verse 30, Paul writes these words. Since you are going through, the three words you see next are very important, the same struggle. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have, he's writing this from prison, remember, and, he, and he's writing this saying, since you're going through the same struggle I have, and you wonder to yourself as you read that, are some of these people being beaten up? Are some of these people being dragged into the agora and having their flesh exposed? And are they being whipped because they're Christians? There's some pretty strong indication that the, 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 the Philippian church was very poverty-stricken. It's in Philippians 4 where we read those famous words of Paul where he encourages them with these words, and my God will meet all of your needs. And you wonder, are they broke? He closes this letter and he assures them that they will have bread to eat and that their needs will be met. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. I think they were broke. Did they, did they lose friends along the way because they had come to Christ? Were family members no longer wanting to be around them? And did they, did they get ostracized by their family because they decided to follow Jesus? This was a new conflict. And often conflict, rather than causing self-centeredness, to evaporate, often conflict makes it come to the surface. 
And I think the conflict that they were facing, rather than causing selflessness to come to the surface, and instead, and it, and it caused all this self-centeredness, all this selfishness to come to the fore. Pressure causes self-centeredness to surface. I think the reason that chapter 2 of Philippians exists is that the pressure that the Philippians were feeling necessitated Paul to write what he did. It was very, it was, you know, very much a culture of every man for himself, dog eat dog, and Paul says, listen, under this pressure, when self-centeredness seems such a natural place to be, you need to find the selflessness within you and let that rise to the top. Pressure doesn't cause self-centeredness to evaporate, it brings it to the surface. Let's, um, let's imagine for a second that uh, there's a, a married couple and they live in Terre Haute, Indiana and she has family in Chicago and it's Thanksgiving and she wants to, they're gonna go see her family in Chicago for Thanksgiving. And not only are they gonna go for Thanksgiving but she's got a family member that's getting married and they are going to, she's gonna go to a wedding um, shower. So she's bought this gift and wrapped it and she's anticipating going to be with some of her family and friends at this wedding shower the day before Thanksgiving. And the wedding shower is going to be at 7 o'clock. And she's told her husband all this, and the husband has calculated in his mind, and he's kind of worked backward, and he says, okay, so 7 o'clock, we've got to be there, so if we leave at 2.30, we should be there. And he says, we'll leave at 2.30. She says, no, that's not early enough. We need to leave it at, at 12.30. Let's leave at 12.30. And he's like, no, that's way too early. We don't need to leave that early. And so they, they go back and forth, and they barter, and they arrive at the time of 1.30 p.m. They're going to leave for this trip to Chicago the day before th- uh, Thanksgiving. And, and so leaving at 1.30 should give them plenty of time. By the way, in the back seat are two car seats. One contains a three-year-old that can't sit still. The other contains an 11-year-old who is teething. All right? So that's the dynamics around this trip. And, and it's going to be an interesting trip, don't you think? Do you remember those days? Some of you are in those days right now. And about 15 minutes into the trip, the wife exclaims, Oh, I forgot that wedding gift. To which the husband replies, what did he say, guys? Oh, no problem. We'll just pull off the highway. You can run in. You can buy something. You know, buy a little wrapping paper, wrap it up. It's good. It's good. It'll be no problem. And she's like, no, by the time we get off the highway and get, find a, a store and I go in and find the exact thing and get paper and we wrap it, I'm going to have more time invested than it would take for us to just turn around and go back and get the gift. So let's just turn around. He is not happy, right? How many of you know he is not happy? But anyway, he, he's a smart man, and he turns his car around to take her back to get the gift. So they turn around, they get the gift that she forgot. Let's not lose sight of that. She forgot. <laughs> they hit a traffic jam on the way, and traffic is not slowed. Traffic has come to a complete standstill. And the wife is starting to stress out because now she's starting to think, I'm not going to get to my wedding shower on time. And she says, I don't think I'm going to make it. And she says, if we had left earlier today, like at 1230, like I wanted to, we would probably get there on time and I wouldn't be late. To which he says, guys, you know what he says, and it's going to get him in trouble. If you hadn't forgotten the gift and we hadn't had to turn around and go back to get it, It wouldn't have been a problem, and we would have had plenty of time. 
I don't find spending two whole days in a car around Thanksgiving break my idea of a good time, to which she responds, no, you find eating a turkey sandwich on the couch by yourself during the ball game a good time for Thanksgiving. And a little bit of pressure and a little bit of self-centeredness begins to surface. And why do we have to spend the day and drive up to spend time with your family Anyway, because that was our agreement, we decided that we would go spend time with our family one year, and then the following year, we would go spend a little time with your perfect family. And the traffic clears, and they drive a little further, and it's a little quiet in the car for the next several miles. What happened? What happened? Not massive pressure. Just the pressure of an 11-month-old who's teething and a three-year-old who can't sit still and a traffic jam, and it all surfaces. The pressure did not cause the self-centeredness. The pressure surfaced the self-centeredness. Let's talk about you and your life right now. What pressure are you experiencing or are about to experience that needs to surface the best in you and not the worst in you. Because when self-centeredness is most natural, that's when selfless is most needed. The, the, the prayer that needs to be prayed at times like this is, Dear Jesus, do a miracle in my heart to let me not just be about me. Selfless is most needed when self-centeredness is most natural. This is true of churches as well. Every organization goes through turbulence, uh, we go through seasons of stability and tranquility, and then we go through seasons where everything seems to be turned upside down. It can be something good like growth, where, you know, we've been through times where we didn't have enough parking places and enough chairs, to times when we've gone through a, a, a deficit of either funds or people or whatever, where you think, man, is anybody going to come to church? Are we ever going to baptize anybody? Are we going to, you know, are we going to ever have enough money to do ministry? And, and this church has known both of those things. It can happen in any organization, and there are just times where things kind of get restructured and things change, and we're going to do it this way now, we're not going to do it that way, and I don't like that. Well, we have to do it this way. When self-centeredness is most natural, that is when selflessness is most needed. Philippians 1.30 shows us the reason behind chapter 2. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have, this was a persecuted church. They were hurting, and they are clinging to the beach ball. It's every person for themselves, and Paul is trying to call them to something above that. He's trying to call them to something better. So phase one was a new challenge, but as you get into chapter two, you move on from the new challenge to the new identity. And what you are prepared for as you move from into chapter 2 of Philippians is for Paul to say, listen, it's not just about you. Think about other people and not just about yourself. And he kind of does that. But it's not really the way you would expect to find it. You would, you would expect that Jesus would tell them about all the, the you know, things that they need to give. You know, you need to give this, you need to give that. But that's not what Paul does. Instead of telling them what to give, the conversation begins with Paul calling them to remember what they have received. That's where Paul fo focuses. Listen to this. It begins with, with if. Therefore, if 
you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, and then he's going to go on to say, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. If you have experienced God's tenderness, if you've experienced his compassion, if you've experienced his grace, um, he doesn't begin by telling them what to give, he begins by telling them what they've been given, what they've received. And this if, it could also be used as sense. You know, I would use the illustration that if we were going to go somewhere in your car, I, I might look at you and say, well, if it's your car, you go ahead and drive. Really what I'm saying is since it's your car, you go ahead and drive. So really what he's saying is since you have encouragement from being united with Christ, since you have the comfort of his love, since you have this movement of the Holy Spirit moving in you, since you have experienced his tenderness and compassion, then I'm calling you to look to the interests of other people and not just to your own. He begins by reminding them what they've received. This is the new identity. I want to I put something on the wall, and I want you to repeat this with me. Just, I'm gonna, you'll understand in a minute why I'm having you do this. Just say these words with me. I am loved, I am treasured, I am secure. Let's say it again. I am loved, I am treasured, I am secure. When Paul came to town 10 years before, he told them about a crucified Jesus who had given up himself for them and that he was the pathway to being adopted into the family of God. And once you come to know the rescuing love of Jesus, this matters to you. You are loved, you are treasured, you are secure. Last week, Tracy got up here and he started to tell you about how they had adopted little Jeremiah. And I don't ever see little Jeremiah running around. That kid is a madman. I don't know if you've, if you've experienced him. That kid's crazy right there. He is a wild man. But every time I see little Jeremiah running around here, I, I see Jesus and I think about Jesus. Because every time I see him, I see myself. Because I'm reminded that Jesus Christ died on a cross so that I could be adopted and be called a child of God. Without Jesus dying on the cross, I have no hope. This little fellow right here was in Africa, an orphan. Life, the outlook for him was not good. I don't know how long you would have expected this kid to live, but it probably wouldn't have been very long. Um, he was pretty much alone, and he was in a home that tried to take care of him, but he got adopted by a family in America that has brought him over here, made him a part of their family in every way, he, he enjoys every privilege that, that the, the other kids in the family do. He gets all the love that that, that that mother and father can give to him. He is loved. He is treasured. He is secure. What difference does it make? It makes a huge difference. When I opened this series last week, I made the statement that if we could really embrace this as a church, it would change what we look like by Christmas time. That's really the goal. One of the things I think about a lot is that, you know, the, the, the average visitor to our church, maybe somebody that comes, but they're not super involved, they just come once in a while, it would be easy, if, you're, if that's what you're doing, it would be really easy for you to come to church and not realize or understand what goes into making this happen every week. It takes a lot to make a place like this go every week. There are people behind the scenes working that you never see. There are people that came to church this week and will stay after church this morning to make sure that our communion service happens the way it happens on a Sunday morning. We got people working in our nursery 
taking care of babies, holding babies, loving babies that maybe you'll never see. We have people that work at our, at our um, welcome center. We have people in the sound booth that, that show up when the band practices and they, they invest time. And you, you probably don't really think about the fact that there's somebody making slides come up and that somebody making sure that the levels on the sound are right. But somebody invests time to do that. We have people that make coffee. We have people that pray. We have people that work with our kids. It is amazing how many people give of themselves to come and make church happen for us. One of the people is, I, I can't, I mean, there's a lot of people I could talk about. One of them is Rollin Beard. Uh, and I, we've talked about this before, but Rollin Beard is here all the time, voluntarily making sure that our building is up to snuff. Uh, when we were building all this stuff, he was here every day. You would have thought he worked for Handy Construction, and we didn't pay him a dime that I know of, but he was here running cords and wires and conduit and making sure lights worked when you flipped them, and he's constantly walking through our building making sure that the, the, the furnaces have the right filters and things like that. When lights go out, ballast, he's the guy that does that, and I'll say, he'll say, we need such and such, and I'll say, well, how much is that going to cost? And he'll say, nothing, I got one back in my barn. You know, I'd, I've never seen the famed barn, but I want to see the barn one of these days because I think it's got everything in it. And Kathy's like, yes, please come to the barn and take some stuff, right? Take something, right. That's Kathy. And you just, the, the way people serve and give of themselves around here, when you serve like that, they serve from a full heart. They serve from a place, I imagine, can you imagine that as people come and serve us, that they get out of their car and they say to themselves, musicians, I mean, yes, they sound great, but they, they invest a lot of time, and as they get out of their car and they're making their way in to, to do their thing, and they say, I am loved, I am treasured, I am secure, and they give to us out of a full heart. They operate out of security, knowing that they're loved. All the volunteers that it takes to make youth ministry happen, can you imagine if those youth workers are getting out of their car and they're coming into the building and they say, I am loved, I am treasured, I am secure. I don't serve out of my emptiness, I serve out of my fullness. I'm not clinging to a beach ball of affirmation. I'm laying my life down and I'm giving to other people. I'm being selfless. I am loved, I am treasured, I am secure. It makes a difference. When people comprehend that they're loved and treasured and secure, they serve differently, they give differently. And when than when they're clinging to this beach ball that says, I have to be affirmed, I have to be recognized. I have to have everybody know what I'm doing. You know, you'll hear people once in a while say, I'm so thankful that God loves me in spite of my sin. I've even said that. And I think I know what people mean when they say that. I know what I'm trying to say when I say that. But think about it. If I ever said to my kids, you know, I love you guys, in spite of the fact that you have failed me miserably many, many times over the course of your life, that really does not convey the kind of love that they want to experience, does it? Guys, if you were to look at your wife and you were to say, I love you in spite of the fact that you never meet my expectations, can I just, that is not the way to build your relationship with your spouse. That's just not how to do it. He loves me in spite of my sin. He, he loves me even though I disappoint him greatly. I understand that, but here, think about this. What if he just loves us? What if he just loves us the way we are? Now, he will not leave you as you are. He wants you to grow 
He wants you to mature. We say it all the time. We want you to come as you are. We don't want you to stay as you are. We want you to grow. We want you to get better. But he never affirms evil in your life, but he will love you many times before all the evil has been purged out of your life. What if God just loves you? Do you realize what that changes if you're able to serve out of your wealth? I am loved. I am treasured. I am secure. They had a new challenge, new identity, new mind. I want to do this real quick. Paul says you guys get a new identity now that you've started to think differently. And then in verses 2 through 4, this is where he kind of piles on over and over this redundancy. Think of others first. That's what he keeps saying. Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. He talks about being of one mind. He's talking about the mind of Jesus. You say, well, how do we know the mind of Jesus? He told us. The disciples are walking along behind Jesus, and they're talking about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And when Jesus got them to the upper room, he took off his robe, he girded himself about, and he washed their feet. And he said, that's what I want you to do. That's how you become great. There's a famous story in the Bible of the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan comes upon a Jew. The Samaritans and Jews did not get along. He comes upon this Jew who has been beaten and is dying, and, and he takes this Jewish person, he puts him on his donkey, walks him into the next town. Jesus tells us this story. And he tells the innkeeper when he gets him into town, he says, listen, I need you to take care of this guy. Here's some money to make sure that all the needs are met. If I, I'm going to come back through town. If you still need more money, I'll give it to you when I come back through town. Just make sure he's taken care of. And Jesus is basically saying through this story that oftentimes showing love is highly uncomfortable and very, very inconvenient. Showing love can be highly uncomfortable and very, very inconvenient. This is the mind of Christ. I want to show you three pictures on the way out this morning. First of all, I want you to see the nativity scene. This is God making his entrance into the earth, and his resting place would be the feeding trough of wild animals. Then I want you to see the image of the Last Supper. It was here that Jesus would rise from that table, he would shed his robe, he would gird himself about with a towel, and he would wash feet of his disciples, including Judas. Selfless, very selfless. And then finally, I want you to see the crucifixion. This is just hours after the Last Supper. Jesus is on the cross, and he is dying for all of mankind so that we can be called children of God, and we can be adopted selfless. So when Paul writes this new decade-old Jesus community in 60 AD, and he says, you need to be of one mind, you need to be like-minded, you need to have the same mind of Jesus who gives and loves and loves and gives, which brings us back to the beach ball. I'm in the pool, and I'm drowning, and I need help, and someone throws me a beach ball, and I begin to cling to this beach ball for all I'm worth, because it is in this beach ball that I have all of my affirmation and all of my recognition and all of my security. Everything is wrapped up in this, and I'm clinging to it, and God forbid somebody poke a hole in it, and I start to drown because I'm not recognized or I'm not affirmed, and I don't feel secure. And all of a sudden, somebody calls out, Brett, Brett, and I hear their voice, and they say, Put your feet down. And it's at that point that I realize I'm a six-foot-tall man standing in four feet of water. 
and I realize that I am secure. I am loved. I am treasured. Do you understand how when you understand those three things, it changes the way you live your life and you no longer need the beach ball of affirmation and recognition. You no longer need people telling you how great you are and you no longer need to be self-centered, but you can live a life that is selfless and, and oriented to other people where you can look at someone and say, I'm going to love you more than I love me. That's our goal. Jesus is our model. I am loved. I am treasured. I am secure. Let's pray together. God, would you in some way be able to lead us to that point this week? As we go out into the world, would we be able to love other people more than we love ourselves? And as the heat gets turned up on our life and as things get a little more pressurized, especially through the holidays, would we be people who do not let self-centeredness rise to the top, but would we be people who supply the one thing that is needed, selflessness? Father, we thank you that Jesus was not selfish. We thank you that in his death, we are adopted as sons. We are a part of the family. We are loved. We are treasured. We are secure. It's in the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen.